Hello, I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, co-host of the AD History Podcast. At the request of the United States Center for Disease Control, I've been asked to share with you this public service announcement. COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. Symptoms of this respiratory disease may include fever, cough, and shortness of breath. These symptoms may show up 2 to 14 days after exposure. If you are experiencing these symptoms and have come in contact with or are in an area with an ongoing outbreak, please call a hotline and or consult a physician. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces. For more information, please visit cdc.gov COVID-19. Thank you. And now to your regular broadcast of AD History. Have you ever wondered how the Romans destroyed the Second Temple, or how they constructed the Colosseum? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD, powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you by a London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, how are you enduring? Um, I'm doing okay. So April is behind us. And April was uh, here in the UK. It was the first full month of lockdown. And it... it just made me realize like this is probably the april 2020 was probably the first month in a very long time where like i hadn't seen my friends in person you know i see my friends most weeks at least once a week or i leave like my hometown at least once a week like it's like oh man like i did that it's just that's what came to mind for me but how are you handling all this you know it's funny you should put it just that way in fact this weekend was the first time I had seen one of our friends. We were able to go for a walk. And at that point, because we've been in lockdown uh, like maybe a week or two longer, it had been well over a month. And it's kind of weird because everybody has their own sliding scale of what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do, what precautions Mm. they should take, what precautions they shouldn't take. But it was just, it, it was good. It felt good. It felt good to be outside and all of that important stuff and, and get to see a, a wonderful friend of mine who I know is listening right now. You know who I'm talking about. And, you know, this would be so much worse if this was the end of November. But luckily where I am in the northeast of the United States, it's been brilliant. And it's brilliant today as we as we record. So before we get rolling here today, we are only a few days out from May 8th which is the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day, the day in which the Allies accepted the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany and its Axis collaborators. And as far as annual celebrations of historical events are concerned, there are very few, if any, that are bigger and more important and widely celebrated than VE Day in particular. And so Patrick and I talked about it, And just like last time, we want to hear your views on what you believe is the most important overlooked or most overlooked important fact in general about World War II. 
And just like last time, you can email it to us at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. You can send it to us as a tweet at adhistorypc on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook. Leave it as a comment. Leave it as a comment on YouTube. You can message it to us. But there is one difference this time. This time we are also accepting voice answer submissions to this question. So if you can keep it under two minutes and in MP3 form, send us your submission as a recorded submission and we may include it in our upcoming episode. Yeah, couldn't put it better myself, Paul. Um, this is, I'm really looking forward to uh, reading what you guys have to give to us and hearing what um, you guys have for us. I was so blown away by the response from uh, the last time we posed the question to you guys. I'm really looking forward to doing it again. And it couldn't be about anything uh, more interesting, of course, um, the Second World War. Everyone knows the big picture details about the Second World War. But like Paul said, we want to know the more forgotten, lesser known facts about it. What you guys may know, what you can share to not only us, but the rest of the uh, AD history listening base. Oh, totally. In fact, I would even say that in the short history of a show, that has been by far one of the most gratifying experiences you and I have had hmm. the opportunity to enjoy. And you guys came through brilliantly. So like I said, we want to hear your thoughts on this question. You can write it on email at historypodcast.tgnreview.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know the deal. And of course, you have the voice submission, which even though I didn't mention it just before, if you do choose to do that, be sure to send it as an attachment in MP3 form to adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. But now it's time for you, Patrick, to lay down our famous and obligatory AD History Podcast ground rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it has been researched, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view and research history today is not necessarily how it was treated 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, and perhaps most importantly, history and the past is like a different country. So anyway, Paul, you've got a very interesting uh, section that I kind of touched upon, but you're going to go in much more detail. So please uh, begin. So this is an enormous portion. And you did mention it, Patrick, that we did, we did look at it through a very specific lens last time and one I enjoyed immensely. And in this case, we are returning to between 66 AD and 73 AD in Roman Palestine. And if you've been following AD history and you have been keeping up with what we've discussed, there is one thing that has been foreshadowed and we have portended to no end, which of course is the destruction of the all-important Second Temple of Jerusalem. And just to get you up to speed for those who may not remember, or somebody who is just joining us for the first time, the Second Temple is indeed that, a Second Temple of Jerusalem, specifically for the Jews that replaced the first one that was destroyed roughly at circa 600 BC by the Neo-Babylonians once they uh, sacked Jerusalem and the Israelite kingdom, and ultimately sent a good many of his 
of the Jewish people into exile in Babylon for the better part of 60 or 70 years prior to Cyrus the Great and the Achaemenid Empire, better known as the Persians, conquering Babylon. And when Cyrus the Great did conquer the Neo-Babylonians, he allowed those Jews who wished to return to Israel, which now is at this point in time of our show, Roman Palestine, which falls under greater Roman Syria, the Jews have been under Roman rule for a very good long time, almost upwards near just short of a century since Pompey first came in and stumbled into their civil war, took sides, and then ultimately installed Herod the Great as the Roman client king in Judea. And this is a story of great significance because of all of the players that it affects. And it also has a very important aspect in the Jesus story, as we discussed in prior episodes. And so 66 AD is largely, and for all intents and purposes, the culmination of so many fears that various Jewish leaders and Jewish people had over that period of time under yet another dominant foreign power that is subjugating Judea and the greater part of what was known at one time, though a good deal prior at this point, the Israelite kingdom. And this plays out in a lot of ways, but the fact of the matter is it was a powder keg and 66 AD is where it blows up. And they're angry for a lot of reasons. They're angry for a lot of reasons. And as we've talked about before, Romans always generally preferred to let their provinces and the people that were not Roman citizens but were still subject to the empire, because you could live under Roman rule and Roman administration, but not be a Roman citizen. So, for example, Jesus lived all his life under Roman rule as a Roman subject, wasn't a Roman citizen. And not being a Roman citizen isn't that great because you're the outsider, you know, you're the one to be underfoot. But they were very practical if they could be. If they could give you a measure of local autonomy, leave your beliefs and your religious practices alone and not force theirs upon you, all the better. So long as it doesn't clearly violate Roman law. Otherwise, they wanted two things, peace and order, paying your taxes. Well, the problem was that, like so many times before in this area, and so many times to this day, that area of the world is not the easiest to rule. So, right now, this thing has most definitely hit the powder keg mode, and it hit it for a lot of reasons. One is, as you can imagine, even though the Romans preferred to give the local autonomy to the people it ruled over, citizens or non-citizens, that didn't always work out. And the one thing in two parts that the Romans always wanted are peace and order and paying your taxes. If you can come through on that, you're probably going to end up okay. But as you put it so eloquently in our first episode, Patrick, when it comes to the Romans, we can do it the easy way and we can do it the hard way. And they knew how to do it the hard way like no one's business, <laughs> though they preferred not to do it if possible. It's expensive, it's messy. And so you were talking about this a bit the last time. By the time 66 AD comes around, a lot of the sects, and there are more of them that 
emerged, but for our intents and purposes, it's not entirely necessary to get into all the feuds and people. But before they were resisting the Romans, the Jews of Palestine, and specifically Judea and Jerusalem, were far more interested and far more busy fighting each other because they all had different ideas of what their life should be, how they are ruled, who rules them, what are the guidelines and standards by which they are ruled. And it, wasn't, it was literally not until they saw Roman legions coming in response to their having taken out a local garrison in Jerusalem that they began to finally put their combined efforts together and begin defending the city to the death. And in this case, the size of the Jerusalem situation is truly epic in its sacking. And there are many, many reasons why, but we're talking at least, I believe, between auxiliaries and local recruits and allies and actual formal Roman legions. Vespasian, who was the initial commander to come on the scene after he was dispatched by Nero to Judea to quell the revolt, I think may have had up to 60,000 troops under his command, which is a considerable-sized army, especially when you figured that the vanguard of it was trained, very professional Roman soldiers. It's not exactly Boudicca's 200,000. <laughs> it's not exactly the wrath of the Iceni there, but it didn't need to be. The interesting part about this rebellion and the battle in Jerusalem itself, it takes about four years for it to reach its crescendo because the Jews do manage to resist for a fair amount of time. But the longer they resist, the greater the wrath and frustration and pure building of rage that ensues in the ranks of the Romans and their auxiliaries and those who contributed as local allies to their forces begins to build. Because this, this was a true on siege. Hmm. And when we get to 70 AD, things start coming apart very, very quickly. And a lot of times, even though it's, it's what I would describe as de facto as opposed to de jure, even though there's not the formal decree yet from the Romans that the Jews can never resettle in Roman Palestine or Judea or Jerusalem itself, that comes after 134 AD in the uh, Bar Kokhba revolt that was led by Simon Bar Kokhba, it might as well have been because they just sacked the city and they destroyed the temple. But they didn't just destroy the temple and they didn't just destroy the city. You were talking about how this was a massacre. And insofar as we know, and one of the difficulties of studying this subject from a historical perspective is that we only have one true source that gives the history to it. And it's a fellow now that we've, whose name we have used time and again, which is Josephus Flavius, who you also talked about last time, Patrick, who we'll get back to in a little bit because he's an interesting and in many cases controversial figure in this case. 
So after years of this, in addition to the fact that not only was this uprising happening at the time, when Nero commits suicide, it ultimately creates an avalanche about succeeding him in the princeps slash emperor role, where you have the period of the four emperors where the initial commander on the scene in Jerusalem, the Roman commander, Vespasian, ultimately comes out on top of the various small civil wars that are happening throughout the empire to ultimately decide who's going to assume that position. So the guy who starts off there is not the guy who finishes there. But the guy who does finish it there is also a member of the Flavian dynasty, Titus, which is his eldest son. So it has been a long drawn out thing. And when this happens, and this is interesting, if we're going by the account that we read in Josephus, is that he doesn't hold back on telling us how brutal it is and how rage ensued and basically man, woman, child, elderly, injured, it didn't matter. A lot of times you're simply going to be underfoot or at the end of the sword. This is war in a way that at its, at its most barbaric, as if there is a, a sliding scale of barbarity in war anyway. And so the interesting thing about Josephus's account is that he seems to believe that his, in, in this case, when it came to 70 AD, the sacking of Jerusalem itself, and ultimately the destruction of that second temple, What's interesting about it is he doesn't believe that it was a planned event. According to him and, and the way he describes it, it seems pretty clear that he doesn't believe that this was intentional, that this was something that Titus did not plan, it was not something that he sanctioned, and that it was something that he actively wanted to stop, which is interesting. There's a certain logic to this, because naturally, if you're going to be on campaign, more or less fighting a province-wide revolt, and you're the, the, the heart of the rebellion, you certainly don't want to destroy the treasure that can possibly assuage the frustration and efforts that it took to be successful in that. So when he's describing the actual destruction of the temple, what really set it apart in its destruction, Patrick, was the fact that it, the uh, several Roman soldiers in Josephus's account actually begin throwing in uh, burning fodder in terms of, of timber that that's that's flammable into the temple itself, where it's leaving the defenders of the temple, which is only one part of Jerusalem at that time, albeit an extremely significant part. The temple had only been recently completed. They actually did it in haste during all of this. <laughs> it, imagine that. You know, it was important to them. They were willing to fight to the death over it. And carry on building despite that. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It, it's, 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 it's an immense level of dedication, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, really. And so he describes Titus actually actively trying to stop it. Now, there's going to be a few problems with this down the road, but we're going to talk about Josephus because Josephus keeps coming back here. He's kind of like the central figure when we're talking about how the history of this is understood. And mm -hmm. so when we're, 
when we're looking at this, he's depicting it as it's not being a planned event and something Titus didn't want to happen. But it did happen. And for all intents and purposes, they took plenty of booty back. You know, let's, there's no question about that. Once they got into the, into the temple vault and the treasury, there was a great deal there, both in, in, in gold coinage, silver, and all of that, but building materials, you name it, it was truly uh, something to behold. And we will be talking about that booty in my section, <laughs> just as a little tease. This comes to a point, though, where there is no question the temple is destroyed, and for the most part, so is the rest of Jerusalem. You don't need an edict to tell anybody they can't really live there because there's nothing to live in. Because it, it, it's simply, it's just a cinder now. And it begins a period where, because of its lull in terms of exactly what happened there and its condition, and this is something that Simon Sabag Montefiore points out in his brilliant history, Jerusalem, the biography, it begins for a time at least to go into a period of uh, the city itself, Jerusalem, of lesser significance, that over the thousands of years in which that city has existed in that place, it has always kind of gone up and down in regards to its importance, but invariably it always finds its way back into the center of events, which would make sense given its potential geostrategic significance, of course. Mm -hmm. And once the second temple is destroyed, obviously the Jews have to go somewhere and they begin spreading out. There'll never come a time in which they'll either which they'll ever have an actual opportunity to rebuild the second temple or build a third temple. And there's definitely certain religious prophecy in Judaism about the building of the third temple. And it's important to note that you have to ask yourself, well, why couldn't they just do it today? Well, that's because somebody else came along and found the site very important as well. Because atop the Temple Mount, which is the you know the, the site that most people will see, you know, like if you're getting a, an aerial shot from like a postcard or a picture on Google or something, that's where the Dome of the Rock is now located. And it's important to note that while the Second Temple in Judaism contained the Holy of Holies, and it was a temple which it is distinct from a synagogue, the Dome of the Rock is not a mosque. It's a shrine, and the reason it's so significant in the case of Islam is because it's said to contain the rock in which Muhammad began his night trip ascension from earth to heaven, and it's sitting in the same place, and it's been sitting there for quite a while, apparently. It was built in 691 to, to 92 by uh, Umayyad Caliph Abdib al-Malik. And it also, I also believe, has received some renovation over time as well. This is a big deal in terms of the Second Temple no longer, not even just not even being able to live in Jerusalem, but the, the Second Temple in 70 AD being destroyed and no real foreseeable opportunity to really be able to come back. And it has very important impact on Judaism in general. And the most notable of those influences, Patrick, is exactly 
how Judaism is practiced. And so the cut and dry explanation for what happens is truly cut and dry, which is that it's the end of priestly significance because of their unique role in the temple. So we're talking about the priests working in the temple. We're talking about Kohims. We're talking about the Levites, which can work in the temple. And for that matter, the Sadducees, who are extremely uh, aligned, aligned very closely with the aforementioned two, and that indeed it's the rise of rabbinical Judaism. So that's a huge deal because hmm. in the case of Judaism in particular, when it comes to priests, priests are hereditary. And of course, they were unique because they had a role that only they could fulfill in the temple, which was the sacrificial ritual on Passover. But in this case, just because the temple is gone doesn't mean that the priest's influence just goes away overnight because they had a number of other very important roles in Jewish society. In fact, from all I can tell in terms of my research, the priests only worked in the temple a total of maybe five weeks of the entire year. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, but it was obviously very significant. It was very influential to be, you know, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, they did a bunch of other things. Like one of the most significant examples I can give you, Patrick, is mm. that they served as judges in many times, which is a huge, huge issue. But still, with the temple going away, and just ultimately the, the effective beginnings of this diaspora, 2,000 some odd years of it, it is the end of their greatest influence, but it's going to happen slowly over time, and it's the rise of rabbinical Judaism. So basically, you're in a situation where rabbis are not hereditary. Son can succeed the father who is a rabbi. Happens all the time. But it's, it's not something you are inherently born into and excluded from due to birth. It's something that's based on, uh, on study, time, dedication, and, and how that works. And now also, depending on the sect of Judaism that you encounter today, when they talk about a place of worship, Orthodox Jews in particular will only refer to that place as a synagogue because they make the direct distinction between the temple, which contained the Holy of Holies, and a synagogue, which is a, a place of worship, but not that central place. You know, but if you talk to a member of Reform Judaism, and even some conservative Judaism, they won't be as deliberate in terms of how they describe it. So it is a big transition for how Jews exercise religious power, and its impact goes out all the way to today. So it, mm. it fundamentally changed the hierarchy and, and how Judaism was practiced. No, it really did change. Like, um, I'm not as learned in the history of Judaism, that's for sure. But I'd only ever heard terms like synagogue and like rabbi. Um, I'd never heard of a Jewish priest. So it's amazing that, that rabbis and synagogue wasn't the norm, if that makes sense. That that came later on. I just found that very interesting. It It is extremely interesting just mm. as, a, as a general adaptation to the events as they occurred. But as I mentioned to you, there is just kind of like this general cut and dry explanation after the destruction of the temple that almost as if the the hereditary priests and the sects that either composed them or were closely aligned with them just melted away and and folded overnight. 
But of course, that didn't happen at all, which is interesting because that's ultimately it's very seldom you go beyond that sort of cut and dry answer when you're talking about the subject. But even with the destruction in 70 AD of the temple, which is just like I said, it's the culmination of the nightmares of generation of Jews, especially when the Romans showed up at the time, it colored all of their greatest anxieties. And ultimately, they knew that they pretty much were putting their finger in the dike, that, that their own people were having trouble keeping them together in terms of sectional infighting or anything that can look in the eyes of the Romans as ultimately being a form of sedition, which there's, there's reason to believe that certain Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus's movement may have viewed him in this way, though there is zero evidence whatsoever that that was at all the intent of Jesus. We've talked about this quite a bit in the past. So when you see this happen and you see the culmination of all their fears, it does give some perspective and potential insight as to better understanding what uh, in terms of the Jewish leaders prior to this time in Judea, in Roman Palestine, as Jews under Roman rule, what they really had hoped to avoid, and that the cultural memory of the Babylonian exile was not some just distant memory. It's something that was very real to them to that day. And as we can see, as events bore out, they had good reason to worry. But this was not the end of this revolt. The revolt would actually carry on for another three years, specifically in a place that still exists with great significance to this day to the modern state of Israel. If you are listening in Israel right now, or you're familiar, familiar with this, surely the words Masada shall never fall again, are very familiar to you. And for those that are not familiar with this, this is what is said. I don't, I'm not sure if this is just for Israeli special forces or this is just for those who are being uh, sworn in and indoctrinated into their mandatory service into the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. But the, the saying is that Masada will never fall again. So what is Masada? Masada is one of the most, almost, most incredible military sieges of all time. When we talk about Masada, we're talking about Masada Fortress, and it is a, a very tall hill. It almost qualifies as a mountain where it's, it actually falls, it starts below sea level because it's right next to the Dead Sea. And it's something on the shortest side of it going up is about 80 feet. On the other side, it's, it's easily can be up to double that climb. And so what Masada was originally was a pair of palaces that Herod the Great had constructed for himself somewhere around a century, maybe a little less prior to the siege of Masada. And so what was the Siege of Masada? The Siege of Masada was either started in 72 or 73 AD, and it lasted about a year. And in this case, it was truly a, a legendary account because it is 
the last major engagement of the 78 years long First Jewish Roman War. And the Jews that were defending Masada were commanded by a fellow whose name was Eleazar ben Yair, leading the Sikari rebels, which was a, a portion of the zealots who were so important in both the rising up this rebellion in Jerusalem and throughout Judea, as well as coordinating the defense of Jerusalem prior to the destruction of the temple and the sacking of the city. And Ed Masada, it's, it was extremely well fortified, and it ended up becoming fortified right around somewhere between 30 and 35 AD. And at some point, these walls, if I understand correctly, were as much as four meters thick, and that the only way up to this tall mountain fortress was along something called the Snake Path, which in this case, you see just this winding road up and around the mountain going slowly higher up until you reach the main gate entrance at the top to the fortress. And needless to say, this is not exactly the, the place that you're all the most interested in if you're the force sieging another force that is located up there because it is an absolute death trap trying to get up there. And so Eleazar and his Sicarii, they totaled about 967, and that includes both combatants and non-combatants, non-combatants being women, small children, the old, the sick, that sort of thing. And around these 967 were Roman legions that were commanded this time by Lucius Flavius Silva, who had 4,800 legionnaires of the Legio 10 Fratenius Legion, and between four and 10,000 auxiliaries. So we're easily talking now between nine and almost 15 or 16,000 troops surrounding the area. It's outnumbered. It's really quite incredible. <laughs> Just quite so. And in fact, the site itself, in terms of, I'm not sure if it's above sea level or just the farthest part from the ground, stands about 1,476 feet on the, on the, top, you know, the tallest ends of this. And in this case, we know that the, the, the siege itself lasted months, uh, if not well into a full year. Apparently, it had access to clean underground water which I believe the Romans also may have tapped into as well. They also enjoyed up there extended access to food, you know, various mm. dried meats and fruit. Apparently they were able to hold out for a long time, not that I think they ever really gave privation much of a thought. They were held up there. They're surrounded by this massive force. So the question that it, the Romans are asking themselves if they're going to finally put an end to this thing is, how the hell do we get up there? Because if you walk the snake path, all you're going to do is be a walking duck target for people that are going to be throwing stones up on you with, the, with having the high ground. <laughs> I have the high ground. You really, if you don't know um, what the Masada Fortress looks like, despite Paul's wonderful description, seriously, give it a Google, because it does look like something from an Indiana Jones film. It looks like something out of Indiana Jones. It looks like something that could be on Tatooine. You know, yeah. you could put Jabba's Palace up there, you know? You could do it. It's, uh, it's that... incredible. I don't know why it's not as uh, well-known. Well, I don't know of it anyway, but, you know, it should be one of those sites 
that it should be on like lists, 100 things you need to see before you die sort of lists. It's quite a breathtaking looking place. It certainly is. And if I understand correctly, according to my research, Masada itself is maybe the most visited site in Israel on an oh, annual basis okay. on average. Oh, so people are going there. <laughs> people are going there. It, it, it's known, but it's it's not necessarily the most well-known of incredible sites necessarily, depending on who you are, where you're coming from. And so the Romans are asking themselves, how do we get up there and not be sitting ducks? Well, the Romans do something that the Romans are really good at, and it's great because it's also just so well dovetails into the next segment with you, Patrick, is they know they need a battering ram. They need a siege battering ram to get through those walls. So what they end up doing is they go on the shortest side of the mountain where Masada is located, which is 80 feet, and they begin building their own path up <laughs> to Masada. And this is incredible because just over weeks and, and the many months, all of a sudden you just have these earthworks that are slowly coming up off the ground, basically create Broadway where they can go pushing in up there and, and get past the outer walls. <laughs> and so they do this. And in fact, if you look at pictures, the path is still there. It remarkably is still sitting up there at Masada, and I'm, I'm, it's, it's wonderful that it's managed to be preserved in this sort of way, because anytime you can see that, see it in a way that the people who were doing it so long ago would have seen it for the most part, I mean, that, that to me is history uh, to the point in which you can almost taste it. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's incredible that, that the Romans... They didn't like that path, so they made their own path. That sounds just so Roman. No, we don't like your path. We're going to do our own one. <laughs> oh, yeah, entirely. And so they took the time and they took the effort. And you couldn't go on the offensive if you were the Sakari up there. You had to sit and wait. Hmm. And unfortunately, in this case, because they couldn't go anywhere, even though apparently their provisions were, were sufficient enough, it was pretty much a ticking time clock. Hmm. But it was a last stand. And a last end they took very seriously, as you imagine they would. So in this case, they build it out of the earth. And eventually the time came when they were going to assault Masada. They push it up. They get up there. And this fighting's intense. You know, there you have Romans that are making their way up the hill naturally. You can imagine Roman legions setting up their shielding over their head in front of them basically making themselves into like a protected turtle with yes, all of them around if, yeah. just creating a shell for themselves and protecting the the battering siege ram and and under all the fire spears and rocks they eventually blow through this very thick outer wall of masada fortress and when this happens and when we start seeing legions begin to flood in the Sakari that have survived, they retreat into the palaces of Herod the Great himself. And at this point, they knew that was it. And according to Josephus, who even though this is recounted in his book, the historical work, The Jewish War, was not there for this. According to him, he, he heard this either second or third hand but there's good reason to believe a, a fair amount is, is accurate in, insofar as the greater pieces are concerned. 
once they all realized that nobody was going out and they most certainly were not going to win, they were not willing to be slaughtered by their enemies. But at the same time, in the case of Judaism, and certainly at this time, suicide, killing oneself, was considered a sin. So according to Josephus, what they did was they drew lots where they would choose nine, ten, maybe a dozen people to slaughter the remainder of them so so they did not have to die by their own sword. And then the remaining folks who had drawn the lots to kill the others drew again where there was only one person left and only one person would have to kill themselves. And this is interesting. It's actually somewhat thematic, but we'll talk about that in a bit. And the only people that were actually left who inhabited the Masada fortress during the siege were apparently six or seven women and children who managed to hide from both sides in a cave. That's all that came out. And given the epic nature of this, as we've described it, the just how picturesque and amazing the site of Masada is and everything that needed to be done in the extended period of time that this siege went on and just how implacable both sides were. And it is something that to this day is still very important because, as I mentioned going into this part of the topic, Masada will never fall again. This is something that remains a culturally relevant and significant symbol of, in this case, Israeli, since we're talking about Israel, fortitude and resistance to never allowing their homeland to be taken from them by anyone ever again. And so it served this this distinct cultural purpose in the modern day, and it certainly was fitting to the level of resistance they had given the Romans and their allies throughout the entirety of this revolt, and that by the end of it, it both sides were fairly well exhausted, as you might imagine. And it wasn't even truly the last gasp of a Jew, another Jewish war and another rebellion, which I mentioned before, the Bar Kokhba one, but that's going to come later down the line. But by the time Masada has fallen, the Jews at this point have lost so much to the hands and sword of the Romans. They lost the city that is so important to them. They lost the temple that is the center of everything that means anything to them as a, as a people, as a religion. Even though it was valiant and, and legendary in its ferocity in their defense, Masada, of course, fell as well. It is the beginning of this incredible diaspora and how over 2,000 years, based on how, where the, the ancestors of those who survived these events chose to go and the societies that they, they adopted and became a part of and became infused with, whether it be Europe or North Africa or other parts of the Middle East, Eurasia, you name it, they begin diffusing out into the world as a people with their religion and over a very long period of time in ways that we'll discuss in far more detail down the road, 
end up adopting and becoming part of other cultures while bringing with them their distinct cultural, religious heritage that essentially remains a very fundamental level, a point of, of a greatest defining factor about who they are and what they believe. And But we, we get to the end of this, and we're waiting mm. for the dust to clear. There is one thing left that is pretty ridiculous. And right off the bat, I know you have a question about Josephus. I know I promised earlier that we would we would touch on him a bit. So, um, yes, I do have a question. Uh, Josephus mentions uh, mass suicide uh, a couple of times um, during his historical writings. How, how likely is it they all actually did end in mass suicides? Because you said, even though they had something of a workaround about it, suicide was such a big sin. Do you really think Josephus was exaggerating that, or do you, or do you think that was the actual case? Josephus was originally a Jew, and in 66 AD... He was one of the initial commanders of Jewish rebellion forces against Rome. And about a year later, near Galilee, in a place known as Jotapa, he experienced a 45-day-long siege, a siege that was only second to both the one that happened in Jerusalem that would culminate in 70 AD and the one that would culminate in Masada in 73 AD. And this was in what would be considered the northern part of Roman Palestine, specifically in and around Galilee. You get the idea. And Jesus was from Galilee. So if you guys look at a map, you'll see. And in mm. that time, he took the opportunity before the outbreak began to, to fortify something like 19 different strategically important towns for the Jews against the Romans. But at Jatapa, he ends up coming into a siege that lasts 45 days, and it's significant. And the thing that's interesting about it, since he was in charge of the forces there, is the vast majority of those forces either wanted to fight to the death or effectively commit suicide and the drawing of the lots. But Josephus actually wanted to surrender. And how do we know this? Well, because he actually describes this process being there firsthand, which is really fascinating. And it says a lot that you would have a commander who's later writing a history talking about he was the one who wanted to surrender and most of his men did not. So what did they do? They drew lots, once again, to do the same thing that they would end up doing in Masada. And it turned out that the only two folks left were Josephus and one other fellow who agreed that we want to surrender. And the reason this even got forced on him at that point is because uh, one of his men actually defected to the Romans and gave them some critical intelligence about when the Jews actually were sleeping on what watch and that the best time to do it was at last watch uh, near dawn, and that was the time to come charging in. And they, the Romans also thought there were a lot more troops there than actually were, and so they took advantage of it. Then you had the drawing of lots, and then ultimately Josephus and the one other fellow surrender to the Romans. And indeed, Vespasian himself—this is in 67 AD—he actually does so to him personally. And so he becomes a slave, and specifically a slave for Vespasian. And the way that he ends up serving Vespasian as a slave was in writing the history 
uh, uh, the Jewish war. And when he talks about Vespasian in his writings, he describes him as a great friend. This is somebody who was, of course, his master when he was in, in servitude. He also speaks very high, highly of Titus. He even credits Vespasian for he owing Vespasian his life. And ultimately, he changed his name to Josephus Flavius as a, as a demonstration of gratitude for this. And he was eventually, Vespasian and, and the Flavian family actually granted Josephus his freedom and made him a Roman citizen. Now, those are two really important points, because like we talked about earlier, not just everybody gets to become a Roman citizen, especially if you're not born as one. We normally use the phrase history is written by the victors in like a metaphorical sense, but that quite literally is history being written by the victors there. I just found that and, fascinating. And that is the central issue here, which is that if you're seeing somebody who, one, started out for the rebellion opposition, surrendered in a siege, which is not entirely unthinkable, but here we are, especially, well, it's more unthinkable if you're the commander for the most part, but you never want to be in charge of a group of guys and be one of only two that come back. Uh, you know, that's, that's never really a great thing. But in this case, and then after he's captured, in, in one form or another, he actively collaborates with uh, the opposition or what was his opposition. And then with their patronage, obviously writes this history. And then he openly admits his fondness and, and friendship. And he does it all very openly. So in one sense, there is this, you can look at this and say to yourself, well, Josephus, this can look outwardly like a personal conflict of interest that you would not want a historian to possess in writing a good history. Obviously, we talk about history always being written by the victors. It's certainly, it's kind of an interesting phrase, but in this case, it's, it were in a problematic scenario because how can you trust Josephus's word to tell you something that reflects the truth of the matter? Because why would he ever portray these people that he's spoken so highly about and he owes so much to, and this is being done under their patronage, in anything other than a generally positive light? And also he was their slave, so you're going to think, like, he's going to write nicer, be nice about them because he's their slave. Like, you wouldn't want to anger your master. No, no, certainly not. <laughs> and so we're kind of forced to ask ourselves the question, you know, to what extent did our Josephus' account, and it's even more important in this case since he's the only account, uh, is this being influenced by that? And there's a few ways of looking at it. So as far as Jotapa, the, the place where he surrendered, one of the interesting parts about that town is that after it was destroyed following the battle and the siege, nobody ever rebuilt it, and it was never rebuilt on so almost to this day, that particular site is almost untouched. It gives a very interesting look at how Jewish life happened there in general in this period. 
And apparently there's also clear scars from the battles just strewn all over the site. And from the archaeological digs and studies that have been done there and based on what they have found, apparently, in many respects, and, and though you can only take this insofar as it goes, it's still an incomplete picture, things that they have found do seem to corroborate Josephus's story. And on top of that, when you're reading the Jewish war, even though he is he makes very clear his connection and fondness for Vespasian and Titus, it definitely does not read as if it is it's as if it's a gift-wrapped history. There are definitely things in there that don't make the Romans look particularly great. And so there there are some elements that you would consider otherwise uh, very unusual if we're dealing with something that is a gift-wrapped history that's being done through the lens of a clear personal conflict of interest, which is interesting enough. And you came into this, you know, speaking of what he actually wrote in various literary tropes, you were asking about the mass suicides. And this is something that, in the case of historians, uh, anthropologists, archaeologists have studied for a good long time, and they can't really figure out if this is just something that really happened at Masada or something that really happened at Jotapa, or if it's something that Josephus likes to include for its literary pizzazz. Because something that is important to remember here is that for the most part, as I understand it, the vast majority of the writing of this, he's writing it for a Roman audience. So he wants to make the Romans look nice. <laughs> not, it's not even necessarily that he is so much he's meant to make them look nice, but he wants to tell a good story. Hmm. You know, if you're because they don't know. <laughs> and no, there are a yeah, fair amount of things no. in here that even though he can describe some of them firsthand, he can't describe them all firsthand. But if if you're interested in having your history read, well, you want to tell a damn good story. I was just reflecting saying, um, how we live in a time where events, if an event happens, there's hundreds of people writing it from different perspectives, hundreds of people explaining that event from their own biases, with their own agendas, from their own perspectives. But as, as you've uh, got written here, he was the only, he's the only uh, contemporary account we have from that time. And if he was the one writing for the uh, emperor then you imagine his is going to get around there quite a lot. It's just uh, fascinating to think this was the only source most people would have had for this uh, for these events was his writings. Yeah, absolutely. And from a historian standpoint, obviously you want multiple sources that are preferably contemporaneous. And in this case, we have one that's only partly contemporaneous and it is also can be viewed not, you know, it's quite understandably through the lens of a potential personal conflict of interest. So Josephus, for all that he's worth, relative to the events that he describes in the Jewish wars, even though he's an excellent source, and he's going to tell you so many things that we couldn't know otherwise, and we don't know otherwise, you still have to look at him relative to this particular history, the Jewish wars, and ask yourself, well, how kind is he being to the folks that he had been enslaved in and then ultimately, in his words, owe him his life for not executing him on the scene right from surrendering? 
and then ultimately being brought back into Rome in for a slave in probably more or less better conditions than the vast majority of slaves in Rome who have ever been slaves, to say nothing of getting your freedom and becoming a Roman citizen. So if you're the listener right now and you're hearing all of this, that's something you have to deeply consider, and you can only weigh in your own mind. But I can tell you for my part, there's always... You always want to come at these things, of course, with a certain objectivity. I hate using the word skeptic because people who describe themselves as, or rather self-brand themselves as skeptics, for the most part, are always seem to be trying to explain something away. But you look at it and you try to achieve a certain objectivity and try to not assume an initial position one way or the other and try to work your way through the evidence as it's presented to you undoubtedly Josephus as the only source under these circumstances are going to make you question more than a few things. But what is is undeniable is that these events have incredible repercussions of which the Jews and Judaism will never be the same. They will, over time, even though you have the last gasp in 134 AD, will take centuries, almost two millennia, to return in an organized fashion as later a nation-state, it changes the religion of Judaism significantly. And ultimately, if you've been listening to us from episode one, you've just seen the culmination of all the fears and anxieties in a span of about seven to eight years. And I do get the feeling that it was probably even worse than they could imagine. Yes, I couldn't have put it better myself, uh, Paul. Um, high praise, high praise. <laughs> high praise, high praise. The Jews, um, as, as you've mentioned yourself, this is the first time they've been unfortunate in history, and this will not be the last time. Forgive me if this is quite a loaded question coming out of nowhere, but something that came into my head as you were retelling me the story, especially with um, the destruction of the Second Temple, is why were the Romans so vicious? And destructive to the Jews because we we have accounts of others not obeying you know to, to to Romans going to other places and putting them in line but it just seemed a bit OTT um the way they treated uh, Jerusalem and the Second Temple and the Jews uh, like I said forgive me that's a bit of a loaded question but what what why do you think that is that's a re- yeah it is a loaded question well a lot of this is going to simply be my own analysis of this. And for the most part, the Romans were both known for bringing civilization and at the same time being as uh, barbaric as those they called barbarians, especially in war. And I think there's probably a few things going on here, is that one, in the case of the Jews in Judea and Roman Palestine, they were just, you know, especially for talking pre-70 AD in that four-year period when you have Nero killing himself, you're, you're having civil unrest other places in the empire. You know, you have a, a number of small civil wars in order to determine uh, succession, which eventually, of course, fell in the hand of Vespasian. And I do believe that there was a component of this that wanted to make an example of the Jews in Roman Palestine, 
that we're not going to be putting up with civil disorder anymore. We've just fought in some of these civil wars. We've been in a uh, otherwise protracted conflict with the Jews by the time 70 AD goes around. They've been jockeying for, for four years, and it's not obviously localized to just that part of Roman Palestine regarding the Great Jewish Revolt. So I do believe they wanted to make an example of them. In addition to that, there is a great deal of significance. We talk about this a little bit more back, all the way back in episode one, where the significance of this particular portion of land to the Roman Empire is, is very important in several ways. First off, from a, a geopolitical standpoint, it's very much a crossroads geographically to other powers, whether it be transit on foot, uh, in particular, controlling the eastern Mediterranean, it being an incredible thoroughfare for things like various trade and commerce. It's also the land bridge that allows you to transit from Europe into Eurasia, into the Middle East, and down into Egypt, which of course is extremely important because Egypt is one of the great breadbaskets of the empire. There's a great deal of wealth in Egypt. It also has access to uh, major sea lanes in terms of commerce from, in this case, Northeast Africa down into India, which is an extremely lucrative business that goes on there. It's a place that, based on its importance, simply in those examples alone, that cannot be unstable. In addition to the, the fact that, you know, you have the Parthians that are not that far away, all told, and you can't have this kind of instability behind the lines. That, and they learn pretty quickly that the Jews and, and various other peoples that do inhabit Roman Palestine, Roman Palestine w was not just comprised of Jews, even though they were by far the, the most important group and, and numerous group there, they also figured that if they're going to have any sort of ability to control these folks, that they're going to have to make it very clear that they're not playing around. And they probably at this point had simply had enough. In addition to the fact, remember, when it comes to Vespasian and you're looking at 70 AD and you have Titus on the ground, who of course is his eldest son, who will be his immediate successor, Vespasian probably, insofar as the whole concept of making an example, if you're a relatively new emperor and you have your own site, your own son on site who in all likelihood will succeed you as princeps slash emperor, you want to make it clear that as the new sheriff in town, as it were, that you're not going to put up with this now or ever. And I think that's really important to keep in mind here because in, in so many ways, Vespasian does try to make it very clear that there's kind of a new age. And, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit more about the Colosseum and whatnot, and I'm not going to steal your thunder. <laughs> Thank you. But it's very clear yeah, it's very clear, especially when we hear more about what you're going to discuss with us, that he was very interested in sending a multitude of messages to his people upon his achieving ultimate power in Rome. Does that answer your question at all, or is there any way I can no, build on no, that? That answered, uh, that answered uh, very interestingly. But just one last thing I want to ask you. 
Um, it's about Masada. How relevant is it in Israel today? You mentioned it's a hot tourist attraction, but is it still a sacred site for, uh, say, like uh, the Jews? Is it still, uh, has it got any sort of spiritual religious uh, legacy to it to this day? Insofar as I know, there's no, there's no religious uh, significance to it, but there, it, it, insofar as Judaism is many things, they have, in, in many ways, a, a distinct shared history that a great many Jews look back to for wherever in the world they live and, and wherever they've made their home and, and the cultures that they've become a part of and, and added to themselves. Its significance really comes down to that statement that I was talking about earlier, Masada will never fall again. And it gives you an interesting insight to the concept of a siege mentality where you're potentially and in all likelihood surrounded by adversaries that are looking to you know, potentially extirpate you, certainly from where you are in your position there in the Middle East where Israel exists today, and that you will never, this is of course all metaphorically, but if, if you, when you say Masada will never fall again, well, what are they really saying is that we will never give up our, our homeland, our state that was founded in 1948. We will never allow that to happen to us again here and now this is our home and we're a fight to the death to protect it that's where the cultural significance comes specifically in the israeli context and of course many uh, the majority population in uh, israel are jews and they reach back into this history and say to themselves we're not going to allow this to happen again that's where that's where they draw strength and symbolism from the history of Masada. Well, that was very interesting, Paul, and thank you for sharing that with us. And as you mentioned, as we mentioned, this very uh, neatly dovetails into what I am going to talk about uh, for today's episode, because as well as uh, this period of time featuring some very infamous destruction in the Roman Empire, is also featured a very famous construction in the Roman Empire, and we'll be talking about that right away, just after a few words from the voice of AD, Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. Now back to Paul and Patrick. So, Patrick, this is one of those times in AD history in which one of our subjects just perfectly dovetails into another, and in many ways, in its most physical way. Patrick, you have the floor. You couldn't have said it better. Uh, uh, you couldn't have said it better, Paul. That definitely is true. Um, as you were uh, mentioned, while the Roman Empire were busy uh, destroying something, uh, from this destruction rose some new construction and what was constructed in rome due to uh what you talked about uh was is perhaps the most iconic landmark of not just the roman world but perhaps the most iconic landmark of ancient history as a whole maybe just 
somewhere with the pyramids as well, quite possibly. And it's quite possibly the most well-known landmark in Italy to this day. It's like Italy's Big Ben or their Statue of Liberty. Um, this is, of course, Rome's Colosseum. And while we may call it the Colosseum, would the Romans have called it the Colosseum? Of course, right now I have to go on a bit of a uh, name-explainer tangent because the Romans would not have called it the Colosseum. Um, Colosseum comes from the word Colosseum. It's a different sort of spelling variation of it. And that simply means amphitheater or stadium or just somewhere for public gatherings. And there would have been many colosseums across the Roman Empire and many more than just one in Rome survive to this day across the uh, former Roman Empire. The one in Rome, however, is the biggest surviving one. And as it's in the capital, it became the most well-known. So it was simply labeled the Colosseum. In the time of the Roman Empire, it's believed the Colosseum would have been called in Latin Amphitheatrum Flavium, which translates into English as the Flavian Amphitheater, uh, named this due to the fact it was constructed by emperors of the Flavian dynasty, who uh, you just talked about yourself, Paul. Um, and the thing about calling it the Colosseum, it's kind of like calling Big Ben just the building, or the Statue of Liberty just the statue. It's quite silly when you think about it like that, but Nevertheless, we're going to be sticking with the name Colosseum, despite the fact I just talked about how wrong that name is. We're going to stick with that name uh, Colosseum, just for ease and understanding, because that's what everyone knows it as, really. So, what was the Colosseum used for? And of course, most famously, it was used for gladiatorial contests. Um, gladiators of Rome would do battle with each other uh, within the Colosseum to entertain the masses, and there would have been shows every day more or less there was always something going on in the Colosseum ideally to keep people entertained which we'll talk about in a moment and we have this idea that gladiators were fearsome warriors who trained all their life but on the whole that really wouldn't have been the case most gladiators were slaves they would have been picked up from the slave trade uh, slave masters would have picked the strongest biggest slaves out the lot and would have trained them up to fight but they by no means would have been expert fighters and a lot of them may not have wanted to be there however this wasn't the case for all gladiators some were just normal citizens who faced hard times and were in need of money and i even read that some people just did it for the fun so we would have definitely have had some people there who had trained all their life to be in the Colosseum. Gladiators wouldn't just fight each other, however. Sometimes they'd be pitted against wild animals, and this includes the likes of lions, bears, rhinos, tigers, elephants, and even giraffes. Any kind of big animal that Rome could have claimed from their empire were brought to the Colosseum. It would have been quite the sight. Um, and sometimes these animals were pitted against one another, and sometimes for entertainment, just solely for the day's entertainment, it would be just watching one of these animals eat a live human who was tied up to a stake. That that would have been your day's entertainment uh, before YouTube. You would have gone to the Colosseum and just watched a lion eat a human for fun, which I found crazy. But that isn't even the most impressive thing that happened in the Colosseum, at least by my uh, judgment anyway. And I don't know if you know this, Paul, but I find this absolutely spellbinding for... um a brief time of i think like a span of history uh the Colosseum would be flooded and sea battles would take place which is just incredible can you imagine that just having the Colosseum full of water 
just watching like boats like boats full of slaves just do battle it's incredible it's a inter- it's interesting that you actually mentioned that because i had always wondered about that i didn't know if that was something that had actually uh we'd found evidence of or this was just something that had fallen into um popular culture i didn't know if it was true and just an interesting quick story uh about 10 years ago i went and he took a a tour of are you familiar with Cowboys Stadium in Dallas, Texas? Cer- certainly you've probably at least seen pictures of it. Yes, WrestleMania a few years back was held there, I believe, so I'm quite familiar with it. That that's definitely in their ballpark. So you know they can expand mm. it open a hundred thousand people whatnot. Yes. So we were yeah, taking a tour yeah. with it about a year after it opened and it was this big long tour. And I remember somebody in the group asked, So do you think you could flood this and have sea battles? And clearly the fellow who was giving the tour, he had absolutely no idea of what this guy was making reference to. And I'm sure most people in the group had not. But I didn't know this was a real thing. So um, I found websites talking about it, um, and they seemed to concur that it was a thing that happened. The first time I heard about it was um, about mid-2010, to in 2013, 2014, when I was studying classics in college. And I remember my classics teacher uh, coming in and saying, oh, this has happened in the world of classics. I know it's such a juxta- like an oxymoron thing to say, this has happened in the world of classics recently. Yes, yes. Um, but I remember her sharing an article saying that they had excavated and found proof of DC battles. Or maybe it, maybe it was still theorizing, but it's still an amazing idea, um, whether it was real or not. But no, definitely, um, I just find it incredible. No, that is absolutely astonishing. This is something that... I had always wondered about, and now mm. you've just confirmed something that I've wondered since I was like eight. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because these are um, the things you think about when you're eight. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's, that's what we sort of focus on here. But um, these sea battles uh, stopped once more tunnels were constructed under the Colosseum to house slaves and uh, animals. But regardless of the nitty gritty of what happened in the Colosseum, there was one reason, one main use for the Colosseum, at least for the higher ups of Rome. And that was just to distract and entertain the masses. Um, a really good term I heard was superficial appeasement, which just sums it up. It was hoped that uh, just just showing uh, these battles and all of this sort of stuff to the masses would keep them mindlessly happy, distract them from their not so great lives, because being a plebeian in ancient Rome wouldn't have been the nicest of times, and just hopefully stop them thinking too much. And um, this sort of helped coin the term panem et circensis, which means bread and circuses, you know, just just generic entertainment, generic lowbrow entertainment to keep people occupied. And we still uh, hear that term today, um, panem et circuses. It's a really nice term. I, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. I'm sure someone will tell me. But why was it constructed? What 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 led to the construction? Why did they need this Colosseum and construction in the Colosseum roots back to 68 AD when Nero took his own life. Um, Nero's poor ruling and excesses fueled civil war and many emperors followed him in a short space of time. Um, this was a really, really erratic time in Rome's history. Um, finally, Vespasian became emperor in 69 AD and he really wanted to try and uh, make amends to what Nero had done to the empire. He wanted to tone down the excess of uh, the court and really wanted to promote public welfare. 
and he just wanted to get back in the good books with the masses after Nero's reign because at this time morale in Rome was at an all-time low people were not happy to be Romans right now and he wanted to change that this emperor wanted to change that and part of that included giving land back to the people and part of this land included the golden palace this was a huge decadent palace Nero had built for himself after the fire of 64 AD Nero took this land and built himself a massive palace that just shows you how uh, uh, selfish Nero was and how excessive he was and so sometime in 70 or 72 AD Vespasian declared that this land the palace was on would uh, become an amphitheater and that would be built there for the people to enjoy uh, events and battles as a way to give back to the people to try and raise that morale and of course this would become the Colosseum and what I really wanted to get to get on uh, with this is the nitty-gritty of how the Colosseum was built how do you build something so massive and incredible I've always kind of hoped AD history would sort of tap on all kinds of parts you know obviously it'll cover history uh some geography fans maybe we'll talk about books and what in the future i'm hoping uh the architecture listening right now will get a big kick out of this section because that uh, that's what i wanted to talk about how the exact construction of something so massive so far back in time um construction took most of the 70s ad which is really fortunate for us with how we uh block out this podcast um and it opened to the public in 80 slash 81 AD. I've read different dates uh, on different accounts as we get so often in this far back in history. We're not sure on the exact dates. So uh, this may seem like a long time. It would roughly have been in construction for about 10 years. Um, and while this may seem long, this was incredibly quick. Uh, if you factor in the time period when this was built and the size of the project, it's unknown how much it would have cost to build. But as you mentioned, Paul, this ties in so neatly to what you were talking about how did they pay for uh this they paid for the treasures rome claimed in the sacking of jerusalem and in the destruction of the second temple they had so much after that and it wasn't only gold and riches they uh they got back from uh, jerusalem they took slaves back as well an estimated 100,000 slaves were brought to Rome uh, from Israel and Jerusalem after the destruction of the Second Temple. And it would have been these slaves that would have constructed the Colosseum. They would have done the more laborious work, I guess, for lack of a better term. And they would have transported stones for the construction of uh, the Colosseum from a town called Tivoli to Rome, which is roughly a 20-mile journey. And I, uh, just out of curiosity... Um, I checked on Google Maps just before we started recording how long it would take for a modern car to drive from Tivoli to Rome. And it's roughly, I saw about 30 to 45 minutes, definitely under an hour. So that might not seem too bad, but imagine doing that journey without cars, without modern technology, while carrying huge stones. It, it, it's incredible. I always find, find stuff. I could talk about that all day. Um, so that, yeah. That would have been a very intense journey to carry those stones, just 20 miles. Yes, not just slaves were used, however, for uh, the more skilled tasks. Rome's finest engineers, architects, artists and decorators, they all came in as well. It was a huge workforce and a huge amount of money uh, could be spent on it from the Jewish war. 
and this meant the Colosseum could be constructed with no expenses spared. They could really go over the top with it um, because they had the money to and they had the people to and all the latest Roman art, design, architecture and engineering methods were used on it. Most noticeably, uh, they used the brand spanking new invention of concrete, which might seem pretty mundane to us, but this would have been an absolute game changer to the Romans. Uh, concrete allowed uh, much quicker construction of much bigger structures. Um, it, the Colosseum wouldn't be what it is if concrete wasn't invented. And new other new building techniques were created for its construction too. Um, I found this really fascinating. The stairs and seats for the Colosseum were actually built off-site. I couldn't find exactly where. And all the stairs and seats are the exact same size. So in theory, they're interchangeable. You could pick up um, a stairwell in the Colosseum or a row of seats in the Colosseum and put it somewhere else. And once they were built, um, they were just fitted into the Colosseum by experts. Um, I just found it absolutely yeah. incredible. Modular construction is absolutely mind-blowing stuff, especially in mm. the ancient world. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just—it was built to the absolute highest standards at the time. In fact, I would say it raised the standards, as we mentioned before. And when it finally opened in 80-81 AD, Vespasian had actually died and his son Titus was emperor. I'm sure you remember Titus from uh, your story, Paul. Oh, he's pretty unforgettable. And Titus celebrated its opening with 100 days of games. And just a fact I found out about these 100 days of games, it's for around 9,000 animals were killed in this period, which is just... Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of animal you have to deal with. God. <laughs> like, just various animals just brought in. They like to celebrate, you know, the, the Colosseum was made for mindless entertainment and... We'll talk about here, actually, how that minus entertainment was viewed over time. So I just want to go a bit beyond before the initial construction and just briefly mm. talk about how the Colosseum was treated over history. And like so much that is valued in history, it takes some time for people to realise that value. And we've seen this with other things in history. When the Berlin Wall was destroyed, it was, it was after a bit people were like, why have we destroyed? I mean, obviously we know why they destroyed it, but it was like, we should keep some of this because this is super important. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the Berlin Wall, well, some of the Berlin Wall does still stand to this day. And the Great Wall of China, um, you, you hear stories about that being that was being used for materials all the time. And the Colosseum was no exception to this. It's thought that over time, two thirds of it have actually been destroyed. So as huge as it is now, it would have been way bigger. And it's thought the Colosseum uh, saw continued use up until roughly the 6th century. But over the years, public tastes changed. People didn't want to see uh, two gladiators uh, fighting each other to the death or a man killing a lion. That just They didn't want to see all of that anymore. I don't know why I watch pro wrestling to this day and I love it. I would have happy been in the Colosseum up until the 6th century. But also... <laughs> I would be like the one person like, it's still real to me, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the story. It's all about the story. Exactly, exactly. I would have been there criticizing it like that. Um, of course, a big factor in the end of the Colosseum's uh, use uh, for its main purpose was the fall of the Roman Empire. 
that wouldn't have helped either. And as the years proceeded, things like earthquakes and fires and just other natural causes uh, damaged the Col Colosseum. And like with the Great Wall of China, much of it was taken to be used for building materials. Um, and I found this incredible. And I found this out. And there'll be a source in the description talking about this more. I found this out when I got to visit the Colosseum myself. Uh, perhaps most amazingly, in the Middle Ages, uh, the disused arena was rented out as housing. You could have lived in the Colosseum. Um, I mean, huh. you had to be a friar. It was mainly uh, friars and other religious people from a nearby uh, church who rented it out. But you could have lived there. I believe if you actually go to the Colosseum, you'll see the base of it. You can see sort of like bricked up walls. And they believe they were like the housing complexes, the little apartments they would have been that these friars lived in in the Middle Ages. Um, and but however, they left after an earthquake in the 14th uh, century, so they weren't there for too long. You can't live there now, unfortunately. Um, it was also used as a quarry to uh, construct other projects in history. And in the 16th century, Pope Sixtus wanted to turn it into a wool factory, which, whatever that means. I don't know if that means sheep were going to be kept there, but it, it just shows you people didn't realise how how amazing this was uh, for quite some time. But luckily, people did start to realise how important the Colosseum was. And since then, it has been preserved and partially restored. In fact, as I mentioned, I went there myself. And I'm sure we'll have to share some uh, cheesy tourist picture of me at the Colosseum um, on our social medias. But when I was there, it was actually... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Scaffolded. It was actually scaffolded up because they were doing doing some uh, reconstruction and some uh, preserving of it. So fortunately, despite its turbulent history, we do really understand now just how important the Colosseum is. It really is amazing when you look back into history and the history of history. A little mm. metaphor here on a, on a Tuesday <laughs> afternoon. But, <laughs> but just how the appreciation of certain aspects of history goes through phases and trends, you know. Uh, our fascination with ancient Egypt, uh, specifically as the West, is a much more modern phenomenon than we would have when most people would originally think. You'd think, well, they've been there for thousands of years. Surely we've mm. appreciated them for that long. But that's not always been the case, and it's very interesting to hear the, the Colosseum in particular in its own experience going through those same kind of trends and, and fashions and history, if you will. Oh, definitely. I yeah, but I said I just found it so incredible to hear like what we hold so uh, of of so much. Like I said, it, it it's the landmark of Italy. If you ask anybody to name like a landmark in Italy, the Colosseum will most like it'll leave you that. Or I guess some people might say the Tower of Pisa. It, it it's so synonymous with Italy. It's synonymous with the Romans, and no one really cared about it. For I mean, for a long while in history, no one really cared about the Romans once their their empire fell. Hence why like the, you know, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages happened. But um, it's just crazy that this thing we hold so much value to wasn't. And you can see that, as you mentioned, with the pyramids. That's a prime example. The only reason we have those still is because they are so goddamn massive. Uh, the pyramids are the only ancient wonder still standing to this day. Um, and I, I presume, I'm guessing, yeah, they aren't the only ones still standing because uh, people wanted to preserve them because... You, the Colosseum, the Colossus of Rhodes is gone. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon are gone. People just didn't think to save them, and we're probably doing that in history as we speak right now. We're probably getting rid of things and destroying things, 
that our ancestors are going to be like, why did you destroy that? That was of value. That is so unbelievably true. It's actually somewhat disturbing. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think of something that's happened recently that like might have been knocked down or teared down and possibly um, would have been of large value to, in, in, in the future. But we just don't know. We don't know something's, something only becomes valuable and important way after its time. Or just, or just the thought that we found uh, Richard III's remains underneath a car park. I mean, isn't that just a perfect example of the kind of stuff we're talking about in that general ballpark, I should say? Exactly. No, no, 100%. Of course, that's a prime example, I think. And people are becoming more aware of it. I think Channel 4 over here in the UK, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's currently on um, a TV channel over here in England. I don't know if it's on or still or is, is happening, but they, they're doing a show where they're going to like this road uh, in the UK, in England, which they believe has like a lot of buried goods underneath it. And they're just going into people's back gardens and digging up, seeing what's underneath there. So th there is interest in this sort of stuff in preservation. Um and yeah, fortunately, uh, in the Middle Ages, they weren't really thinking about that when they were stealing bricks to make other houses from the Colosseum. No, I suppose they wouldn't have been thinking about that, would they? Nope, nope, nope. But you were going to talk more about the construction. Well, the first place I want to start, Patrick, is so naturally there was a political motivation behind the construction of the Colosseum, not just the materials that were used for it, but obviously um oh what's his name his name is um vespasian vespasian mm -hmm. was looking to rehabilitate the empire in the eyes of its own subjects and do you know is there any record i should say of his initial inspiration to create a coliseum of all things was it simply a natural progression from the many amphitheaters that would have dotted the ancient Roman world, or was there any any other uh, motivations or inspirations for this particular project? Um, I couldn't find anything like that. I did obviously find I didn't find any like uh, first hand sources of a uh, Roman writing talking about it, but I can kind of understand why it would have been a Colosseum. I think it makes so much sense. It's big and grand, like especially, you know, it, it's, it's huge, the Colosseum. It would have been bigger when it was first built. So it's a it's an amazing looking thing. It's not like a humble little like theatre or any other sort of amphitheatre. And it, like, like I said, being a plebeian in uh, ancient Rome would have been tough and you wouldn't have been the brightest bulb. <laughs> not to, you know, like I said, I, I'm a big pro wrestling fan, so I don't want to say they're just it, it, it's dumb entertainment because I love it to pieces. Um, the kind of entertainment, you know, it, you wouldn't have had plays, you wouldn't have had like fine Roman theatre in the Colosseum, and I don't think the plebs wanted Roman or like Greek theatre. I don't think they were particularly into that. They wanted to see, uh, like I said, bread and circuses. They wanted to see a bit of poke, a bit of action, and I just think the combination of the Colosseum looking grand. And the kind of entertainment it could provide was just kind of the perfect thing for them. Because, yeah, like I said, it's big. It would have been very impressive looking. It still is very impressive looking. And it just would have given them what they wanted. Now, the other thing I'm curious about when we're talking building materials, and obviously, you know, archaeologists have gone through the Colosseum up and down over over the decades and centuries. Is there any, um, any particularly distinct 
pieces of building materials or um, anything that they may have taken from the Second Temple that uh, archaeologists have been and, and anthropologists have positively identified as something that they were able to recognize from records of which existed at the Second Temple at the time of its destruction? Do you follow my thinking? Oh, no, I follow it completely. Is there, yeah, I understand what you're saying completely. Is there anything that we know for sure was at the Second Temple yes. that is now in the Colosseum? Um, I couldn't find anything on that, but that would be incredible. Like you said, the, these two events are so intertwined, and I didn't know that before I started researching this. I knew you were doing the Second Temple. Uh, you knew I was doing the construction of the Colosseum, and I researched was like, oh, man, this is really, these two things are really connected. But, um, I couldn't, no, simply put, I couldn't, uh, like I said, the, the only things I found out about it were that the it was the treasures and the money acquired from uh, Second Temple destruction and the slaves from there were used. Actual building materials from uh, Jerusalem, I didn't see anything on it, but that would be damn fascinating if there is anything from Jerusalem in the Colosseum. That would be incredible. Because I know that did happen with the Arch of Titus. Uh, huh. yes. yes, yes, because not not only were they just bringing back all of all of these great, amazing uh, trappings of physical wealth, mm. but the uh, the Arch of Titus, which of course was built to commemorate Titus's victory in seventy A.D., uh, they mm. most certainly were using physical materials from that... the Second Temple in its construction. That's the reason I ask. No, yeah, I completely forgot about the Arch of Titus, and I've even been there myself. Like I said I've been to Rome. That just tried it back. It's right by the Colosseum, isn't it? The um, I, I believe arch. it is nearby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, yeah, I just remembered I've been there myself. Um, like I said, I saw. I, I, I didn't read anything about it. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that stuff was from the uh, was from uh, the Second Temple, but I just I didn't see any proof or sources saying that. This is the AD History Podcast. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our journey for today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, you can find me on my YouTube channel, NameExplain. And for myself, you can find me on my newly minted Twitter account at the handle at History, as well as on the social media news platform Quartz by searching Paul K. DeCostanzo. Also, Take a peek at my reader email submitted Q&A column, the World War II Brain Bucket over on TGNR. We have a link down in the description. If you enjoy AD history and you want to support the show, be sure to leave a glowing five-star review. Or if you're on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. AD history really does depend on listeners like you leaving reviews and ratings to help support it. Now over to Anna to properly send you guys home. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Yes, thank you for listening. Be well. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History Podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook, by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube, 
by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. On behalf of Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. We will see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.